recorded live. Oops, sorry about that. Hello, this is William Fink of Christagenia.org. This is Christagenia Internet Radio. Today is Friday, March 7th, 2014. I did a program last week from Philadelphia. I apologize for the technical problems. <clears throat> the, the, um, I, I believe Sculpt was the culprit. I dialed in from, from the road in, into my streaming computer and started Skype, and it went right into upgrade mode. There used to be a setting to prevent that. I don't know where, that, where it is now. I, I don't see it anymore. Skype upgrades like it wants to when it wants to. That's Microsoft. Microsoft is um, everything they get their hands on, they turn into trash and, and, and squeeze every last penny out of it, I guess. Microsoft software is absolutely terrible. I will make a concerted effort during the calendar year to become independent of, of Microsoft Windows for, for radio streaming. It's a little trickier with Linux, but I'm going to give it my best shot. About the topic last week, I did a program on the Ukraine to try to set some people straight that they're confusing um, the, the nationalist parties over there with the, pe the people who are in power. The nationalist party, Swoboda, I did make one error last week that they did take several seats in, in the cabinet. My information told me that they had refused to do that. I stand corrected. I believe it was only the party leader who chose not to do that. Several Swoboda party members had cabinet seats, and, and some quite important ones. Swoboda is the only real nationalist party in the Ukraine, but they're not the party in power. The party of the prime minister and the party of the president they call themselves the um, All-Ukrainian Union Fatherland Party. They're really left, leftist, they're, they're really liberal, EU-leaning politicians, and, and most of them are old party hacks who have been dealing with the Russians and the opposition and the Jewish oligarchs for the last 20 years. That, that's Ukraine in a nutshell. That's the major points I tried to get across last week. I'm going to do, I, I hope, I'm thinking about it. Let me not say I'm going to do it, but I'm thinking about doing a follow-up program in, in a couple of weeks. I would like to see um, what, what transpires and which way things go. It, it looks like, and, and people in Ukraine are afraid that the real nationalists, the Svoboda Party, that the nationalists are being set up and, and that they're actually afraid that there's going to be a nationalist purge when the liberals and, and the Russians cooperate. We'll see if that pans out. I, I pray that doesn't happen, of course. It, it's, well, well, it's too early to tell. Putin's a wild card. This clown in the American White House is a much bigger wild card. So, uh, and, and I can't tell the future. That's just the way it is. Tonight we're going to present the Prophecy of Micah, Part 3. In the first three chapters of Micah, over the last two parts of this presentation, we saw pronouncements of judgment upon Israel and Judah. Judgment which would carry all the way to the gate of Jerusalem and, and that 
infers that Jerusalem would not be destroyed, and it wasn't destroyed by the Assyrians. It was destroyed about a century and a quarter later by the Babylonians, but it wasn't destroyed by the Assyrians. We discussed the fulfillment of those judgments, which Micah pronounced against Israel and Judah, in the Assyrian invasions, which were not long after Micah had begun preaching. The kingdom of Israel would be lost, and the people of Israel had no recourse in the matter. They would lose all of their possessions, and they would be carried off into captivity. Their sins, sexual, political, and economic fornication, described by Hosea, Isaiah, Amos, and Micah, the same things that we're doing today, the Christian, the Christian world is doing today in all Christian nations everywhere and has been doing under the guise of globalism and capitalism. Much of Judah was also decreed by Yahweh to suffer likewise. And much of Judah was also carried off into captivity by the Assyrians. However, in his fourth chapter of Micah, which we are about to present, the focus of the prophet changes, and his prophecies move from the imminent destruction of ancient Israel and Judah to a vision foretelling what it was that would befall them in their future after the deportations. And with that note, we will begin with Micah chapter 4. Verse 1. But in the last days it shall come to pass that the mountain of the house of Yahweh shall be established in the top of the mountains. And it shall be exalted above the hills, and people shall flow into it. This phrase, the last days, as it is often rendered in the King James and other versions, contains the Hebrew word akarif, Strong's lexicon, Strong's Hebrew lexicon number 319. And the word is defined by Strong to mean the last or end, hence the future or also posterity. For reason of its meaning, it has a broad meaning. It was translated in the King James Version in a wide variety of ways. But it does not only pertain to the very end of the age, which in the Christian worldview means the time imminent to the second advent, the judgment of Yahweh. Although Akarif is generally and wrongly interpreted in that manner, very commonly. In fact, the apostles called their very own time the last days. We see that in Acts chapter 2 in the words of Peter, in Hebrews chapter 1 in the words of Paul, and in 1 John chapter 2. While at the same time, the apostles also considered the last days to be far off in the future in relation to their own time. So they used both meanings of the word. And we see that 
in 2 Timothy chapter 3, James chapter 5, 1 Peter chapter 1, 1 2 Peter chapter 3, and in Jude, verse 18. Therefore, since the word is used by the apostles the last days, the phrase, it's not the Hebrew word akarit, but it's the phrase, it's the idea expressed in Greek, the phrase, the last days. They use that idea of their own time and of some time far off in the future. Therefore, the meaning of the phrase is relative to its context. This is also evident in Genesis chapter 49, where Jacob's prophecy concerning his son says, Gather yourselves together, that I may tell you that which shall befall you in the last days. Of course, Jacob didn't mean at the end of the world. If the things that became Jacob's sons happened throughout, uh, or, or I should say if the things that befell Jacob's sons happened throughout all of the time, immediately subsequent to Jacob and continued to happen well into the future, then the same thing is true here. And the references to the last days in Micah and in Isaiah, and we'll quote it shortly, where we find a very similar prophecy to this one in the opening verses of Micah. The references to the last days in those prophets began in the period of time following the judgment and deportations of ancient Israel. In other words, this prophecy began to unfold in the future, from when Micah is writing, in the future, from the visions he gives of Israel's captivity in the first three chapters. These prophecies began to unfold almost immediately afterwards. So last days doesn't mean the end of time. It should probably have just been translated the future. In the future, it shall come to pass. The phrase in verse 1, the mountain of the house of Yahweh. The mountain of the house of Yahweh would be established in the top of the mountains and exalted above the hills. In prophecy, Mountains and hills are often allegories for nations, great and small. For instance, speaking of the doom which he foresaw coming upon the remnant of Judah by the hand of the Babylonians, where Jeremiah said in Jeremiah chapter 4, I beheld the mountains, and lo, they trembled, and all the hills moved lightly. Jeremiah was talking about nations, small and great, which were in awe of Babylon's great might, and not about literal mountains and hills. There is language which is very similar to this passage in Isaiah, not only to verse 1, but to the subsequent verses also, leading into a prophecy, the same judgment upon Israel which was made by Micah in his first three chapters, and around the same time that Michael was making his own prophecy. Isaiah and Micah were contemporaries. And here I'm going to read Isaiah chapter 2 in part. The word that Isaiah, the son of Amos, 
saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. And it shall come to pass in the last days, same word, in the future, that the mountain of Yahweh's house shall be established in the top of the mountains and shall be exalted above the hills, and all nations shall flow into it. And many people shall go and say, Come ye, and let us go up to the mountain of Yahweh, to the house of the God of Jacob, and he will teach us of his ways, and we will walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law, and the word of Yahweh from Jerusalem. And he shall judge among the nations, and shall rebuke many people. And they shall beat their swords into plowshares, and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war any more. O house of Jacob, come ye, and let us walk in the light of Yahweh. So we see much of Isaiah chapter 2 very closely parallels this chapter of Micah. The language is nearly identical to the first several verses of this chapter of Micah. Now notice that neither Micah nor Isaiah say anything which indicates that some temple building would one day be rebuilt. Rather, they both said that only the mountain of Yahweh's house shall be established. This has nothing to do with the temple building. The mountain of Yahweh's house was Moriah, and it means chosen by Yahweh. It has nothing to do with the temple building and everything to do with the people of God. For the appropriate Christian view of the house of God is that God dwells in and among his people and not in a temple made with hands. From 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 1, For we know that if our earthly house of this tabernacle were dissolved, we have a building of God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. Likewise, the earthly dwelling place of Yahweh was destroyed. The temple was destroyed, but his true home is also eternal in the heavens. Just as Christ told the Pharisees that his temple would be raised, torn down and raised in three days. They thought he was talking about the temple on Moriah. He was actually talking about his body being the dwelling place of God, because that's who he is. As Paul told the Athenians, God that made the world and all things therein, seeing that he is Lord of heaven and earth, dwells not in temples made with hands. Acts chapter 17. That God's earthly dwelling is in his people is evident in 1 John chapter 4 from verse 11. Beloved, if Yahweh has loved us thusly, we also are obliged to love one another. No one has at any time seen God. If we should love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. By this we know that we abide in him and he in us, because he gave to us from of his spirit. And we witnessed and we testify that the Father sent the Son 
the Savior of the society. He who shall profess that Yahshua is the Son of Yahweh, Yahweh abides in him, and he in Yahweh. We'd seen in the discussion of the meaning of Zion, I know a lot of people want me to pronounce that Zion. <laughs> it, the, the, technically, it should be Zion. We had seen in the discussion of the meaning of Zion while presenting Micah chapters 2 and 3, that the word, when used prophetically, actually refers to the people of Yahweh. This assertion was substantiated by reading Isaiah 51:16, where it says, And say unto Zion, Thou art my people. In the Psalms, in Isaiah, and in the prophet Joel, we see that Yahweh was said to dwell in Zion. But the actual temple of Yahweh in Jerusalem was said to have been built on Moriah and not on Zion. And we gave an example from Chronicles last week that, that demonstrated that completely. Moriah and Zion were both originally distinct mountains in Jerusalem. While Moriah is a Hebrew term which means chosen by Yahweh, apparently the term is not used in the prophets, even upon searching for the Hebrew form. However, it is also said of Israel that they are indeed Yahweh's chosen. Moriah means chosen by Yahweh. Isaiah 41.8, But thou, Israel, art my servant, Jacob, whom I have chosen, the seed of Abraham, my friend. Perhaps, with the children of Israel being chosen by Yahweh to be his people and his dwelling place, because Yahweh dwells in Zion, the two terms converge in an allegory. Once all of this is understood, it becomes evident that the mountain of the house of Yahweh must refer to a great nation of his people, which is formed after the deportations of Israel and Judah in the last days relative to the time of the prophecies which Micah already uttered concerning the destruction of the kingdom of Israel, which stood in his time. This interpretation becomes fully manifest once we encounter verses 5 through 8 of this chapter of Micah. So the establishment of the mountain of the house of Yahweh, which is established in the top of the mountains, in other words, over all other great nations, and exalted above the hills, above all smaller nations. That mountain in the house of Yahweh is a great nation of his people. It's not some rock in, in, in Kyrgyzstan that, that the Jews hope to build some remodeled temple on one day. That, that's ridiculous. Verse 2. And many nations shall come and say, Come, and let us go up to the mountain of Yahweh, and to, put, and to the house of the God of Jacob. And he will teach us of his ways, and we will walk in his paths. 
For the law shall go forth of Zion and the word of Yahweh from Jerusalem. Nations are properly people groups and not governments or geographical areas. In order to find the fulfillment of this prophecy, we must find a great nation which other nations have flowed into. This great nation would govern with the law of God as its guide and the word of God as its inspiration. Of the utmost importance is the description that this nation, which is the mountain of the house of Yahweh, which is established or to be established in the future, is also of the house of the God of Jacob. This means that the people groups of this nation, of which this nation is comprised, those people groups, those nations flowing into this nation, must be of the descendants of the house of Jacob, of the ancient Israelites. They cannot be some strange people who have somehow replaced the ancient Israelites. They must be of the house of the God of Jacob. If this prophecy is fulfilled, or if it is being fulfilled, we must therefore identify a great nation which was founded on biblical principles, and which therefore also must be a Christian nation. Those who reject Christ have not God, according to both the Apostle John and Christ himself. The people of this nation must also have their origins and history in biblical Israel. They must be genetic Israelites. If all of these criteria are not met by at least one nation in the world today, then Micah's words are for naught. They are meaningless. Furthermore, the criteria infer that there are also many other nations in the world which are of the same children of Israel, those from which the many people flow into this great nation. From Jeremiah 3.14, Turn, O backsliding children, saith Yahweh, for I am married unto you, and I will take you one of a city, and two of a family, and I will bring you to Zion. Verse 3, Michael chapter 4. And he, referring to the God of Jacob, shall judge among many people and rebuke strong nations afar off. And they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation shall not lift up a sword against nation, neither shall they learn war any more. But they shall sit every man under his vine and under his fig tree, and none shall make them afraid. For the mouth of Yahweh of hosts has spoken it. Well, we still have war with us today, and therefore this part of the prophecy is not yet fulfilled. Much of this prophecy describes a gradual and an eventual result, which is evident in the subsequent verses. 
rather than an immediate result. Here we see the final result here in verses 3 and 4. We see the final result which all Christians should have expectation of, but which is not yet completed. This nation, which is the mountain of the house of Yahweh, is evidently destined to be the nation through which God ultimately executes his judgment of the world. However, as we learn from the apostle, I think it was Peter. It may have been Paul. Judgment starts in the house of Yahweh itself. And therefore, this nation must somehow first be brought to obedience in him. That's a hard trip. Verse 5. For all people will walk, everyone in the name of his God. You know, this might sound like some kind of crazy ecumenical or universalist statement on its surface, but if you pay really close attention to it, this is a very foreboding statement. For all people will walk, everyone, in the name of his God, and we will walk in the name of Yahweh our God forever and ever. Yahweh is the God of Israel, and only the God of Israel. From Psalm 147, verse 19, he showeth his word unto Jacob, his statutes, statutes, I'm sorry, and his judgments unto Israel. He has not dealt so with any nation, and as for his judgments, they have not known them. Praise ye Yahweh. This verse clearly tells us that all who are not of Israel will walk every one in the name of his God. From Psalm 96.5, For all the gods of the nations are idols, their vanity, but Yahweh made the heavens. This verse, in relation to this great nation, is a refutation of humanist universalism that insists that all people should worship the same God. The Bible tells us that these other people are going to worship and walk in the name of their gods, their small g, idols. After the judgment of Yahweh, if you can find the gods of the other peoples, then perhaps you will find those people. As Paul explains, the gods of the other nations, they don't exist. Elsewhere, in Jeremiah chapter 46, the word of God says, Fear thou not, O Jacob my servant, saith Yahweh, for I am with thee, for I will make a full land of all the nations where I have driven thee. But I will not make a full end of thee, but correct thee in measure, yet will I not leave thee wholly unpunished. That full end of all these other nations must correlate with the judgment of God promised here in the final verses of this chapter of Micah. When all the other nations, all the other people, walk in the name of their gods, they shall be as though they have never been, according to Obadiah 15. We'll get to that one before the end of this segment.
Verse 6, and this is um, one of my favorite verses in Scripture. In that day, saith Yahweh, will I assemble her that halteth, and I will gather her that is driven out, and her that I have afflicted, and I will make her that halted a remnant, and her that was cast far off a strong nation. And Yahweh shall reign over them in Mount Zion from henceforth, even forever. This totally substantiates everything I said about that mountain being established, being a great and mighty nation in verses 1 and 2. The phrases, her that halteth, her that is driven out, her that I have afflicted, and her that was cast far off. Those phrases all refer to the children of Israel in the Assyrian and Babylonian deportations. The strong nation made from her that was cast far off must ostensibly be one and the same as that nation which is the mountain of the house of Yahweh described in verses 1 and 2 of this chapter. In order to understand the prophecy, we must honestly attempt to follow the children of Israel in their exile in the period following the Assyrian and Babylonian deportations. And this is the primary difference between identity Christians and Judaized Christians. We believe the Bible. Yahweh says he'll take those children of Israel that were cast out and make them a strong nation. The further they go away, the mightier they'll become where the Judeo-Christians following the Jews say, oh, those people disappeared. They disappeared. They got blended into the general mass of mud that now exists in Mesopotamia. They disappeared. Nothing became of them. The Jews make the Bible a lie. That's why, that, that's why we could tell that they're of their father the devil. When a Jew moves his lips, he's lying. When a Judeo-Christian moves his lips, he's not much better. While the Judean historian and Levitical priest, Flavius Josephus, did what may be considered an excellent work concerning the history of Judea in the centuries immediately preceding and then contemporary to his own time. He did an excellent history of the Maccabees and, and, and the time of Herod leading down to the, the destruction of Jerusalem. He did. But he did not do so well with the ancient history of the world as a whole. Paul knew a hell of a lot more. And therefore, his insights were limited by what may be considered the prejudices of the Pharisees. 
However, here is what Josephus writes concerning the Israelites of the Assyrian captivity during the time of Ezra the scribe. When Ezra had received permission from the Persian king to lead a group of those Israelites who were in exile back to Judea. From Josephus' Josephus's Antiquities, Book 11, from line 131. When Ezra had received this letter, he was very joyful and began to worship God and confess that he, meaning God, had been the cause of the king's great favor to him, and that for the same reason he gave all the thanks to God. So he read the letter in Babylon to those Judeans that were there, but he kept the letter for himself and sent a copy of it to all those of his own nation that were in Media. Remember when the children of Israel were deported, one of the places they were settled were the cities of the Medes. And when these Judeans, now, now note that Josephus seems to improperly identify Israelites of the Assyrian deportations as Judeans, however, the final context of this statement reveals that he means to refer to those of the tribe of Judah in media. And we'll see that. It's not stated explicitly, but it's definitely manifest in the context. And when these Judeans had understood what piety the king had toward God and what kindness he had for Ezra, they were all greatly pleased. Nay, many of them took their effects with them and came to Babylon as very desirous of going down to Jerusalem. But then the entire body of the people of Israel remained in that country. So he's calling the people of Judah Jews or Judeans, and he's distinguishing them from the Israelites who were settled there by the Assyrians. And he goes on to say that, therefore there are but two tribes in Asia and Europe subject to the Romans, while ten tribes are beyond Euphrates till now, meaning Josephus' own time and are an immense multitude, not to be estimated by numbers. Now, in reality, since not many more than 40,000 people, by Ezra's own records, ever returned to Judea with Ezra, that could hardly be all of the people of Judah in the Assyrian captivity, which took place over 200 years earlier than Ezra, and which consisted of several hundred thousand people from Judah alone. So part of what Joseph, Josephus repeats is basically propaganda of the Pharisees. But that's okay. The record is valuable. Now, Nearly everything else Josephus said in this passage is true. If we understand his rather narrow perspective, however, his story is not complete. 
For while the children of Israel and many of the children of Judah were indeed at this time dwelling beyond Euphrates and in those places where the Assyrians had originally planted them, and while their numbers were indeed quite large by the time of Ezra, they did not all stay there. In fact, in the 7th century B.C. and after, new groups of peoples, theretofore unknown, would begin to appear in the historical records. And the origin of these new groups of peoples can be considered to be Chimerian and Scythian, peoples who are actually one and the same, depending on whether you want to call them by the name the Assyrians had for them or by the name that the Greeks had for them. Chimerian was actually a Hellenization of the Assyrian word Khamri. The Greeks called them Scythians or Sake, and Sake was the Hellenization of the Persian word for the Scythians. And these, if you read my Germanic origins papers, you realize that on multilingual inscriptions that are 2,500 years old, there's no doubt that the Chimerians are indeed the Sake and the Scythians. The Persians left us inscriptions in Farsi, in Akkadian, the language of the Assyrians, and in Aramaic, which identify these things with all certainty. Examining all available historical records from the 5th century BC, which was the time of Ezra, to the 1st century AD, which was the time of Josephus, no so-called Jews ever dwelt north or east of the Euphrates in any significant numbers. And there are several Greek historians and geographers which go into great detail about the people dwelling in those regions. Strabo. Herodotus, and others. Examining those same records, except for the ancient nations such as the Medes and the Persians, who were known to writers of scripture since the days of Moses, there are only Scythians, Chimerians, Parthians, and related tribes dwelling in those places. And they were indeed an innumerable multitude. Other places in Josephus corroborate this assessment that it was indeed these people, the Scythians, Parthians, and Chimerians, whom he was referring to, such as in the preface to his first book, Wars of the Judeans, where he distinctly mentions the Parthians as being amongst those northern barbarians that he wrote his book to so that they would know the outcome of what happened in Jerusalem. And he wrote it in Aramaic, hoping they would read it. The northern barbarians are indeed the dispersed children of Israel. No doubt. Here we shall briefly examine a second witness, which is an apocryphal book of Scripture. 
that is not necessarily canonical, but which indeed dates to no later than the first century A.D. The book found in the King James Version Apocrypha known as 2 Esdras is actually considered to be at least three different works concatenated into one. And that assessment by mainstream academics is probably accurate. The portion cited here is from the portion which scholars call 4 Esdras, the oldest and largest portion of the book. It certainly dates to the first century A.D. From 4 Esdras, chapter 13, verses 39 through 45. And whereas thou sawest that he gathered another peaceable multitude unto him, those of the ten tribes, which were carried away prisoners out of their own land in the time of Hosea the king, whom Shalmanasar, the king of Assyria, led away captive. And he carried them over the waters, and so they came into another land. Now let me say that because an identifiable remnant called Judah was left behind by the Assyrians, which also consisted of much of Benjamin, the fact that Judah and Benjamin were also taken by the Assyrians, many people from Judah and Benjamin, that fact is always overlooked by the ancients. Josephus didn't overlook it. But then he claimed that they all returned back to Jerusalem, and that certainly is not true. Verse 41, for Esdras. But they took this counsel among themselves, that they would leave the multitude of the heathen, and, and that's a reference to the other Adamic nations among whom they were settled. The children of Israel were settled in Ali Abene, the river Habor, the cities of the Medes. They're all districts in, in northern Assyria and, and Media. They took counsel among themselves that they would leave the multitude of the heathen and go forth into a further country where never mankind dwelt, that they might keep their statutes, which they never kept in their own land. And they entered into Euphrates by the narrow places of the river, for the Most High then showed signs for them and held still the flood till they were passed over. For through that country there was a great way to go, namely of a year and a half. And the same region is called Arsareth. The first home of the Cimmerians in Europe is esteemed by mainstream academics to have been in the Hungarian plain in what is now eastern Hungary, bordering on Romania. In Romania, there is a river called the, the Seret River to this day, which actually has its sources in the Ukraine and empties into the Black Sea from the northwest. The word Arseret can certainly be interpreted to mean mountains of Seret. The 5th century Greek historian Herodotus wrote that in his time, the lands north of the Danube, these very lands that later became the homeland of the Cimmerians, 
which he personally visited, were uninhabited, except for some colonists from the Medes. That's what Herodotus says. To the Greeks of the 4th century B.C., the 4th century now, Ezra, he's the 5th century, Herodotus, he's the 5th century B.C., to the Greeks of the 4th century B.C., this was a part of the homelands of the Galatahi. And to Tacitus, the Roman historian of the 1st century A.D., it was part of Germania. The deported Israelites certainly fit the description of colonists from the Medes or from media. The Bible tells us, and these things go hand in hand, the Bible tells us exactly where many of the children of Israel were originally sent in their captivity. Yet that does not mean that they were to be contained in those places. As we can see in several prophecies, and among them is Isaiah chapter 43, verse 1. But now, thus saith Yahweh that created thee, O Jacob, and he that formed thee, O Israel, fear not, for I have redeemed thee, I have called thee by my name, thou art mine, by thy name, I'm sorry, when thou passest through the waters, I will be with thee. And through the rivers they shall not overflow thee. When thou walkest through the fire, thou shalt not be burned. Neither shall the flame kindle upon thee. Compare those words to the passage we just read from 2 Esdras, or actually from 4 Esdras, chapter 13. Speaking of that same Speaking of that same captivity of Israel, Yahweh also says in the prophet Isaiah, in chapter 66, from verse 18, For I know their works and their thoughts. It shall come that I will gather all nations and tongues, and they shall come and see my glory, and I will set a sign among them, and I will send those that escape of them unto the nations, to Tarshish, Pul, and Lud that draw the bow, to Tubal and Javan, to the isles afar off that have not heard my fame, neither have seen my glory, and they shall declare my glory among the nations. History also helps us to verify these things. Most of these places in Isaiah, where Yahweh is saying that he was going to send these people of the children of Israel, the remnant that escapes the Assyrians, most of these places are readily identifiable, being among the nations, the Adamic nations of Genesis chapter 10. Tarshish is Tarsus in the southern part of the Iberian Peninsula, the same place to which Solomon's ships had often traveled 
many centuries before. Lud can be identified as Lydia in Western Anatolia and also as Etruria, since the Etruscans of northern Italy are by all ancient accounts a branch of the Lydians. The people of Tubal can be identified with the tribe which the Greeks knew lived on the Black Sea, whom Herodotus called Tiberanians. Where Herodotus mentioned the Tiberanians, he mentioned them in company with the Mosci. They were neighbors to the Mosci, whom the Bible calls Meshech. The Bible often mentions Meshech and Tubal together. And Strabo, as well as Herodotus, mentioned the Mosci and the Tiberani, or Tiberanians, together. And in that same region, by the Black Sea. So all these people can be identified. Javan was the biblical and also the Persian name for the Ionian Greeks. So where is Yahweh going to send the remnant of Israel? He's going to send them to Anatolia, to Greece, to northern Italy, and all the way to the Iberian Peninsula and Spain. Isaiah 6619. Not much more than 120 years after the Assyrian deportations had begun, the people whom the Greeks called Chimerians, along with other Scythian tribes, did indeed begin to appear in all of these places. At the end of the 7th century BC, they destroyed Nineveh itself, and then, crossing Anatolia, they destroyed Phrygia. They sacked the cities of Lydia, and they threatened Ionia. By the middle of the 5th century BC, tribes of the Gauls, as the Roman called those people that the Greeks called Galatahi, tribes of the Gauls began to swarm into what is now northern Italy, overrunning the Etruscans. Just before 390 BC, they invaded Italy and sacked Rome itself. 394, I think the year was. As well as we could reckon. The Roman historian Livy had described them, when he described the sacking of Rome, Livy described them as a strange new people relative to the time that he was recounting. By that same time, they had come to occupy much of modern France and parts of the Iberian Peninsula, as well as northern Germany. By the 2nd century BC, portions of them had crossed the sea and were later known as Kimri and Caledonian. The Romans called them Picts. The Britons were earlier Phoenician and Trojan inhabitants of Britain and Ireland. If the prophet Isaiah 
tells us where the children of Israel would be sent in their exile. And these Germanic tribes began to appear in all of these places as early as 200 years after Isaiah had written. then their identity cannot be a mystery. That's absurd. However, for another 800 years, these tribes of Israelite Scythians would be migrating from Asia into Europe. While they never totally left Asia, many of them stayed behind. Scythians were in uh, northern Mesopotamia, Sakasani, Armenia, Iberia, and the Caucasus Mountains for a long time. <clears throat> they never left. They were eventually overrun by Arabs and Turks, but they never left. Among the later waves of Scythian Israelites into Europe were the Saxons and the Goths. And I believe the Huns, I believe that could be established. And even some of the so-called Slavs, many of the Slavs are also ostensibly Jepethites, but many of those tribes were actually Israel. There's a series of essays at Christogenia called Classical Records and German Origins. They number six to date. Maybe someday there'll be, there'll be a part seven it's been in the works for quite a few years. They describe these things in much greater detail. These are only a portion of the proofs of the identity of Israel in captivity. And there are many more in the Bible, in history, and in archaeology. The only purpose here is to offer enough proof to illustrate this point that the children of Israel in captivity became those peoples later known as Celtic, not to be confused with the proto-Celts, and Germanic. However, many other tribes of Israelites sprung from those who emigrated out of Israel in the early centuries, prior to the Assyrian deportations. It is not our intent to discuss them here, among them, however, were people later known as Phoenicians, Trojans, Dorians, Danans, Malaysians, and even Romans. Several other essays at Christogenia discuss those things more fully. Now to repeat verse 7 of Micah, And I will make her that halted a remnant, and her that was cast far off a strong nation, and Yahweh shall reign over them in Mount Zion from henceforth even forever. The further away the children of Israel traveled from the place of their captivity, the stronger the nations which were sprang from them became. We can see these stages in the development of the West from the ancient Saxon kingdoms 
then to the Germanic Holy Roman Empire, founded by the Frankish kings, to the British Empire, and then ultimately to America. Verse 1 of this chapter of Micah describes America perfectly, where it says, but in the last days it shall come to pass, that the mountain of the house of Yahweh shall be established in the top of the mountains, and it shall be exalted above the hills, and people shall flow into it. In our Revelation chapter 12 presentation, given here nearly three years ago, we said this, America is the first and only nation to have been founded as a Christian nation, or actually as a federation of Christian nations, which are the original individual states. And just as the dragon tried to kill the Christ child as soon as it was born, the international Jewish bankers have tried to destroy America ever since it was born. It should be without doubt that America is the nation foreseen at Jeremiah 3.14, where it states, Turn, O backsliding children, saith Yahweh, for I am married unto you, and I will take you. One of the city and two of the family, and I will bring you to Zion. While there are other prophecies in Isaiah chapter 66, Daniel chapter 7 and 12, and elsewhere, which are certainly referencing this nation, it is evident that Micah chapter 4 is the most complete prophecy of America in Scripture. Now, that was a direct quote from Christlike, and where it says Daniel 12, the intention was to refer to the last verse of Daniel 11, which informs us that the glorious holy mountain is between the seas. That was an error. It is also no coincidence that America, as a federation of nations, was founded 2,520 years after the Assyrian deportations began. That is, a time, times, and half a time. Verse 8. And now, O tower of the flock, the stronghold of the daughter of Zion, unto thee shall it come, even the first dominion. The kingdom shall come to the daughter of Jerusalem, not to that dump in Palestine, that hellhole. While most, if not all, of the mainstream commentaries ignore this connection, it is to this verse in Micah that the words of Christ recorded in Matthew 21:43 should be cross-referenced, where he said to those in Judea who opposed him, For this reason I say to you, that the kingdom of Yahweh shall be taken from you and given to a nation producing its fruits. Even though we understand that Judea was long corrupt, it was still perceived as the kingdom of Yahweh. Up until 70 A.D. The tower of the flock, the stronghold of Zion, is the stronghold of Yahweh's people in their captivity. Once again, this must represent that nation described by the phrase, mountain of the house of Yahweh. 
in the opening verses of this prophecy. The prophet Daniel gives a couple of visions which may be correlated to this chapter of Micah. In Daniel chapter 2, the prophet describes a series of beasts which are identified with certainty with the ancient world empires beginning with his own time, the Babylonian, Persian, Greek, and Roman. The Roman Empire is then prophesied to be supplanted by a stone cut out of the mountain without hands, after which a kingdom which would be set up a kingdom would be set up which would never be destroyed. From Daniel chapter 2, verse 44. And in the days of these kings, meaning those, that series of empires, ending with the Roman, shall the God of heaven set up a kingdom which shall never be destroyed, and the kingdom shall not be left to other people but it shall break in pieces and consume all of these kingdoms, meaning the Babylonian, the Persian, the Greek, and the Roman. And it shall stand forever. For as much as thou sawest that the stone was cut out of the mountain without hands, and that it break in pieces the iron, the brass, the clay, the silver, and the gold. References to that beast Daniel saw, which represented those four empires. The great God has made known to the king what shall come to pass hereafter, and the dream is certain, and the interpretation thereof sure. This vision also identifies the people of God as those same Germanic tribes, since only they broke the old Roman Empire into pieces. Earlier than them, the Parthians had conquered the Persian Empire. People who have descended from the Goths, Franks, Angles, Saxons, along with a handful of related tribes, have dominated world history and politics ever since. In Daniel chapter 7, there is a similar vision, although it is somewhat more complex which can be interpreted in a way that elucidates an even greater span of world history, but which incorporates what Daniel had seen in the vision, in well, well, what Daniel had interpreted of Nebuchadnezzar's vision in Daniel chapter 2. This vision also contains a series of beasts representing world empires and a series of despots portrayed as horns which arise after them. Yet at the end of the vision, we see that all of these are destroyed. From verse 21, I beheld, and the same horn made war with the saints and prevailed against them, until the Ancient of Days came, and judgment was given to the saints of the Most High, and the time came that the saints possessed the kingdom. And from verse 27, And the kingdom and dominion, and the greatness of the kingdom under the whole heaven shall be given to the people of the saints of the Most High, whose kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and all dominions shall serve and obey him. Understanding what the symbols of Daniel chapter 7 represent, and I'm not, I, 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 don't, I can't afford, I'm sorry, I can't afford to explain them all here this evening. But understanding those symbols 
We can also understand that the Germanic peoples are indeed the saints of the Most High. After the passing of the horns of Daniel 7, the Reformation established that the Word of God would remain in the hands of his people and again. And for better or worse, those people have dominated world history and politics ever since. Verse 9. Now why dost thou cry aloud? Is there no king in thee? Is thy counselor perished? For pangs have taken thee as a woman in travail. Be in pain and labor to bring forth, O daughter of Zion, like a woman in travail. For now shalt thou go forth out of the city, and thou shalt dwell in the field, and thou shalt go even to Babylon. There shalt thou be delivered. There Yahweh shall redeem thee from the hand of thine enemies. There is a very similar language in Isaiah in that same chapter, Isaiah chapter 66, which, well, which precedes the statement we have already cited here that told us where the children of Israel would go in their captivity, this time from Isaiah 66 from verse 7, before she travailed, she brought forth. Before her pain came, she was delivered of a man-child. This is describing Israel, and the man-child is Christ. Christ was born long before the end of Israel's period of punishment. So before her pain came, she was delivered of a man-child. Verse 8, who has heard such a thing? Who has seen such things? Shall the earth be made to bring forth in one day? Or shall a nation be born at once? For as soon as Zion travailed, she brought forth her children. Now these children are the nations to come from the people of ancient Israel. Verse 9, Shall I bring to the birth and not cause to bring forth, saith Yahweh? Shall I cause to bring forth and shut the womb? Say it by God. In the phrase, as soon as Zion travailed, she brought forth her children, we see the vehicle by which Yahweh chose to fulfill the promise to Abraham that his seed would indeed become many nations and inherit the earth. This was partially fulfilled in those nations such as the Dan and the Dorian Greeks, the Trojans, the Illyrians, the Romans, the islands of the west populated by Israelite Phoenicians, it was partially fulfilled in them. However, the fullness of the promise came in the children of Israel taken away by the Assyrians, from whom came the Cimmerians, the Parthians, the Scythians, eventually the Celtic and Germanic tribes, and the related peoples, the Scandinavians, some of the Slavic tribes, the tribes which dominated the nations later known as Christendom and which dominate world history unto this day. Here Micah is confirming to us that the promise to Abraham 
through Israel would be fulfilled in her that halteth, in her that is driven out, in her that Yahweh had afflicted, and in her that was cast afar off. Verses 6 and 7. Paul of Tarsus understood the fulfillment of the promise to Abraham, and Paul understood that as the reason for the spread of Christianity into Europe. Therefore, he explains in Romans chapter 4 that the nations to whom he brought the gospel were those same nations in which Abraham believed, those nations which were promised to come from his loins. If you did not come from the loins of Abraham, Abraham did not believe in you. As to the promise that thou shalt go even to Babylon, and there shalt thou be delivered. This is going to be a long one, too. The children of the Assyrian captivity, which included nearly all of Israel as well as the greater part of Judah, did not go to Babylon. Therefore, Babylon here cannot mean to refer to the ancient city by no means. Rather, Babylon must represent something else, something which transcends the ancient place. Babylon represents a prophetic concept. In Revelation chapter 12, we see a woman described who was cloaked with the sun and the moon beneath her feet, and upon her head a crown of 12 stars. Ostensibly, the woman represents the 12 tribes of Israel. The woman bore the man-child, we see here in Isaiah and Micah. She then fled into the desert where she has a place, having been prepared from Yahweh in order that there they may nourish her for a thousand two hundred and sixty days, prophetic years. It took Israel that long for all the tribes of the dispersion in Europe to accept the gospel of God. Later, in the same vision, after a war is described where Satan, the dragon, is cast down to the earth, it is said that when the dragon saw that he had been cast down into the earth, he persecuted the woman who had given birth to the man-child, the Christ. And the serpent had cast from his mouth water as a river after the woman in order that he may have her carried off by the river. And the earth assisted the woman and the earth opened its mouth and gulped down the river which the dragon had cast from his mouth. And the dragon was angered by the woman and went to make war with those remaining of her offspring who keep the commandments of Yahweh and have the testimony of Yahshua. It is therefore not a coincidence that as the Germanic peoples migrating from Asia began to settle down in their new European homes, after the old Roman Empire had been broken in pieces, after they also came to accept Christianity and began to build a Christian civilization, 
And it is no coincidence that shortly thereafter, the Arabs and then the Turks and then the Mongols, all with the instigation or assistance of the Jews, attempted to invade and subjugate the nations of Europe. The river from the mouth of the dragon. But at this time, or at that time, I should say, as we see it indicated, the earth helps the woman, so the woman prevailed. However, it is also no coincidence, and this is an important observation, that the woman fled into the desert in Revelation 12, the 12 tribes of Israel, the woman with the 12 stars. She fled into the desert where she had a place of refuge for many centuries. And then, later, where John has a vision, which is recorded in chapter 17 of the Revelation, he says that one of the seven messengers of God brought me to a desert where he finds a whore sitting atop a beast having a gold cup in her hand full of the abominations and the unclean things of her fornication. And upon her forehead a name is inscribed, Mystery Babylon the Great, mother of the whores and the abominations of the earth. The children of Israel were represented by the woman of Revelation chapter 12 who fled into the desert and the same children of Israel are now the whore of Revelation chapter 17, joined to the beast, which John was later taken out into the desert to see. My bet is it was the same desert and the same woman. Therefore Yahweh said through the prophet Micah that she shall go even to Babylon, and there shalt thou be delivered. And here they are today, where they do indeed need to be redeemed from the hands of their enemies, because they are deeply entrenched in mystery Babylon and overrun by their enemies. Verse 11. Now also many nations are gathered against thee that say, Let her be defiled, and let our eye look upon Zion. But they know not the thoughts of Yahweh, neither understand they his counsel. For he shall gather them as sheaves to the floor. Verse 11 cannot mean to refer to the sieges of Israel in the time of the deportations. Because at that time, the enemies of Israel were successful in overcoming them. As Micah had already told them that they were going into captivity and that they had no recourse in the matter. Yet here from verse 12, it is apparent that the enemies of Israel will certainly fail and that they themselves will be gathered as sheaves to the floor, which is a description reminiscent of the fate of the tares in the parable of the wheat and the tares in Matthew chapter 13. It is the threshing floor where the wheat is separated from the tares and the chaff. 
This prophecy must therefore be correlated to other similar prophecies, such as those in Ezekiel, chapters 38 and 39, Revelation chapter 20, and in Psalm 118. Ezekiel chapter 38 lists the consortium of nations in league under Gog from the land of Magog. And those nations listed are names familiar from Genesis chapter 10. While it is evident upon examining the contents of the list of the nations in this league that all of these are now, now, race-mixed nations and not the actual Genesis 10 Adamic peoples that the names once represented, these names are used ostensibly so that students of Scripture are able to identify who these peoples are today. These nations are now those of Eurasia, including Russia, and the Arab nations of the subcontinent and the Near East. Most of these nations are now Islamic. However, a convincing case can be made that Gog itself represents world Jewry, and we have done that in our Revelation commentary for chapters 19 and 20, where we said that Gog is Ezekiel's term for the eighth beast of Revelation chapter 18, which is world Jewry. Having infiltrated 19th century Christianity and having poisoned its doctrines with the Bullinger and Scofield Bibles and other such works, now most of the true Christian Israel peoples of the world worship the eighth beast. This is the beast which gathers all of the nations to battle against the children of Israel, which is also described in Revelation chapter 20. This is precisely what the Jews have been doing throughout all Christian nations at this very time. Many nations are gathered against thee that say, come, let her be defiled, and let our eye look upon Zion. In Revelation chapter 20, we read, And when the thousand years are completed, the adversary, or Satan, shall be released from his prison, and shall go out to deceive the nations which are in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them to battle, of which the number of them is as the sand of the sea, and they had gone up upon the breast of the earth and encircled the encampment of the saints and the beloved city. And fire descended from out of heaven and devoured them. And the false accuser who deceived them is cast into the lake of fire and sulfur, where are also the beast and the false prophet, until they shall be tormented day and night for the eternal ages. This prophecy as it was also established in our Revelation commentary, began its fulfillment over 200 years ago upon the emancipation of the Jews in Europe, granting them the ability to launch the political takeover of all Christendom, which is also manifest in its fullness at this very time. With this political takeover by Jewry, this deception of all the nations, all of Christendom is being overrun with aliens under false pretenses. Therefore, speaking of the same adversarial consortium of nations we see in Ezekiel 38, that it says, from verse 8, After many days thou shalt be visited. In the later years thou shalt come into the land that is brought back from the sword, 
and is gathered out of many people against the mountains of Israel, which have always been waste, but it is brought forth out of the nations, and they shall dwell safely, all of them. Thou, meaning Gog and Magog and all their bands, thou shalt ascend and come like a storm. Thou shalt be like a cloud to cover the land, thou and all thy bands and many people with thee. Thus saith Yahweh God, it shall also come to pass, that at the same time shall things come into thy mind, and thou shalt think an evil thought, and thou shalt say, I will go up to the land of unwalled villages. I will go to them that are at rest, that dwell safely, all of them dwelling without walls and having neither bars nor gates, to take a spoil and to take a prey, to turn thine hand upon the desolate places that are now inhabited and upon the people that are gathered out of the nations which have gotten cattle and goods and dwell in the midst of the land. However, Ezekiel chapter 39 informs us of what the end of this invasion by the hordes of Gog and Magog is going to be. From verse 2, And I will turn thee back and leave but the sixth part of thee, and will cause thee to come up from the north parts, and will bring thee upon the mountains of Israel. So we see the sixth part, little ones left behind in their old nations. Most of them are here or in Europe. And I will smite thy bow out of thy hand and will cause thine arrows to fall out of thy right hand. Thou shalt fall upon the mountains of Israel, thou and all thy bands. And the people that is with thee, I will give thee unto the ravenous birds of every sort, and to the beasts of the field to be devoured. Thou shalt fall upon the open field, for I have spoken it, saith Yahweh God. And I will send a fire on Magog, and among them that dwell carelessly in the isles, and they shall know that I am Yahweh. So will I make my holy name known in the midst of my people Israel, and I will not let them pollute my holy name any more. And the nation shall know that I am Yahweh, the Holy One in Israel. Behold, it is come and it is done, saith Yahweh God. This is the day whereof I have spoken, the day of his wrath. And they that dwell in the cities of Israel shall go forth and shall set on fire and burn the weapons, both the shields and the bucklers, the bows and the arrows and the hand staves and the spears. And they shall burn them with fire seven years. There is a definitive completion in this promise, which although it is repeated in many other places, is encapsulated quite succinctly in Jeremiah chapter 30, where it says, for I am with thee, saith Yahweh, speaking to Israel, to save thee, though I make a full end of all nations where I have scattered thee. Yet I will not make a full end of thee, but I will correct thee in measure and will not leave thee altogether unpunished. I can't repeat that verse enough. There should be no mistake in Israel as to the faith of the non-Israel peoples in the world today. Why the hell do we even worry about them is 
sick name. And if the prophecy has been true for well over 2,700 years, then we can certainly expect it to come to a complete fulfillment. Now, verse 13. Arise and thresh, O daughter of Zion. How is that? Verse 12, speaking of these nations that come against Israel, but they know not the thoughts of the Lord. He shall gather them as sheaves to the floor. Verse 12, so we know who we're talking about. Who's going to be threshed? And who's going to do the threshing? Arise and thresh, O daughter of Zion, for I will make thine horn iron. And I will make thy hooves brass, and thou shalt beat in pieces many people. And I will consecrate their gain unto Yahweh, and their substance unto the Lord of the whole earth. In case we did not understand Jeremiah chapter 30, verse 11, the prophecy is repeated in Jeremiah 46, 28. Fear thou not, O Jacob, my servant, saith Yahweh, for I am with thee, for I will make a full end of all the nations where I have driven me. Now you tell me where an Israelite has not been driven to. But I will not make a full end of thee, but correct thee in measure, yet will I not leave thee wholly unpunished. In the prophecy of Obadiah, in verses 15 through 18, we see these same things foretold, not only the end of the house of Esau, which is mostly comprised in world Jewry, but also the end of all the nations which are feeding themselves off of Yahweh's holy mountain, which is Zion, the children of Israel. From Obadiah, from verse 15, for the day of Yahweh is near upon all the heathen, or all the nations. As thou hast done, it shall be done unto thee. Thy reward shall return upon thine own head. For as you have drunk upon my holy mountain, go outside, look around, see all those niggers and chinks and squat monsters in your white cities, your white suburbs, with those young white girls, and think about Obadiah 15 and 16. For as ye have drunk upon my holy mountain, so shall all the nations drink continually. Yeah, they shall drink, and they shall swallow down, and they shall be as though they had not been. But upon Mount Zion shall be deliverance, and there shall be holiness, that separateness and dedication to God, that separateness Israel was supposed to have from way back in Exodus chapter 18 or 19. And there shall be holiness, and the house of Jacob shall possess their possessions. And the house of Jacob shall be a fire, and the house of Joseph a flame, and the house of Esau for stubble. And they shall kindle in them and devour them. 
and there shall not be any remaining of the house of Esau, for Yahweh has spoken it. It is indicated both here in Micah chapter 4 and in Obadiah that the children of Israel will certainly have a part in the final vengeance of Yahweh God against his enemies. However, it is important to understand when that is supposed to happen, for they can certainly never take any action of their own volition, but they are bound to wait upon their Lord. Of course, chronologically, it cannot be told just when that is going to be. However, it can be told from the state of affairs of the society just when that time may come. It would be as, as in the days of Noah. It would be marrying and giving in marriage and eating and drinking. Well, in the days of Noah, they were race mixing. That's why they were marrying and giving in marriage. They were partying. That's why they were eating and drinking. Same state we have amongst our people today. But there's more to it than that. From the Revelation, chapter 18, verse 1. After these things, I saw another messenger descending from heaven, having great authority. And the earth is illuminated from his effulgence. And he cried out with a mighty voice, saying, Babylon the great has fallen, has fallen. And it has become a dwelling place for demons and a prison for every unclean spirit and a cage for every unclean and hated bird. Negroes, Chinamen, Indians, Indians, squat monsters, the non-white races. Because from the wine of the passion of her fornication fell all the nations, and the kings of the earth fornicated with her, and the merchants of the earth are enriched from the power of her wantonness. And I heard another voice from out of heaven saying, You come out of her, my people. This is after Babylon falls, right? You come out of her, my people, that you should not partake in her errors than that you would not receive from of her wounds. Because her errors had built up as far as heaven, and Yahweh has called to mind her injustices. You return to her as she also had rendered, and you double twice the things according to her works. In the cup which she had mixed, you mixed double for her. As much as she had magnified herself and lived wantonly, so much you give torment and grief to her. Because in her heart she says that I sit a queen, and I am not a widow, and I have not seen grief. For this reason, in one day shall her plagues come, death and grief and famine, and she shall be burned with fire, because mighty is Prince Yahweh who judges her. For the Lord Yahweh. So where Christ in the Revelation says to his people, you come out of her, my people, that you should not partake in her errors and that you would not receive from of her wounds. We see that Babylon has already fallen. Then he says to his people, you return to her as she also 
had rendered. And you double twice the things according to her works. And the cup which she had mixed, you mixed double for her. With this, we can see exactly when, as Obadiah says, the house of Jacob shall be a fire and the house of Joseph a flame. Because the cup that the heathen drinks is ultimately the same cup of Yahweh's wrath. And therefore, we also see exactly when all of Israel should hear the call to arise and thresh, O daughter of Zion. And there will be no mistake about it. It is also no coincidence that in the next vision in Micah, the next prophecy recorded in Micah chapter 5, we see a messianic prophecy. Psalm 118. Psalm 118 is also a messianic prophecy. And I offer it here in part from verse 8. It is better to trust in Yahweh than to put confidence in man. It is better to trust in Yahweh than to put confidence in princes. And for these reasons, the next Hitler is Christ, and he'll succeed. All nations compass me about, but in the name of Yahweh will I destroy them. They compass me about. Yeah, they compass me about, but in the name of Yahweh will I destroy them. They compass me about like bees. They're quenched as the fire of thorns. For in the name of Yahweh, I will destroy them. Prophetically, that me here must be the body of Christ. Thou hast thrust sore at me that I might fall, but Yahweh helped me. Yahweh is my strength in my song and has become my salvation. The voice of rejoicing in salvation is in the tabernacles of the righteous. The right hand of Yahweh doeth valiantly. The right hand of Yahweh is exalted. The right hand of Yahweh doeth valiantly. I shall not die but live and declare the works of Yahweh. Yahweh has chastened me sore, but he has not given me over unto death. Open to me the gates of righteousness. I will go into them, and I will praise Yahweh, this gate of Yahweh, into which the righteous shall enter. I will praise thee, for thou hast heard me, and art become my salvation. This next part's important, because it takes these words that all nations have compassed me about, and in the name of Yahweh I will destroy them, and connects them directly to Christ. The stone which the builders refused is become the headstone of the corner. This is Yahweh's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day which Yahweh has made. We will rejoice and be glad in it. Therefore, is the return of the Messiah directly related to the destruction of all these non-Israel nations and the true salvation of his people Israel. Likewise, 
Revelation chapter 19, and the marriage supper of the Lamb described that very thing. The promise of the return of Christ, therefore, includes the cry, all nations compass me about, but in the name of Yahweh will I destroy them, and also the cry. Arise and thresh, O daughter of Zion. We must rejoice and praise Yahweh our God that we see these things being fulfilled in our lifetime and that we can discuss it openly. And therefore we know that he is true. Thank you for listening. Praise Yahweh. Tomorrow night, Clifton Emma Heisen.